Welcome everybody to the very first episode of The Inspiration Space. On The Inspiration Space, I aim to bring the stories and visions of some of the most motivational individuals and companies that operate in the realms of health, fitness and mindset. Over the coming months, I'll be releasing some great episodes with some truly fantastic people, so get excited. On today's show, I have a long-time friend of mine, Jamie Sparks. Jamie is a six-time world record holder and has no plans of slowing down. His mindset and his approach to life have had a massive impact on myself and many others. Arguably, Jamie's most notable achievement was rowing the Atlantic Ocean in 2014. Jamie and his rowing partner, Luke Birch, rowed the Atlantic in just 54 days and broke the world record for being the youngest ever duo to ever row an ocean. In this episode, he also touches on his latest public appearance in SAS Hell Week, which broadcasted on BBC Two this year. So guys, please sit back and enjoy just a few of Jamie's unbelievable tales. Good morning, Jamie Sparks. How are you, sir? Fantastic to have you on the show. How is life? Good morning, Aidan. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you very much. No problem, no problem. Obviously, we're going to be talking about your fantastic uh, journey and, and about all your adventures and about everything you've achieved. But I'm very curious as to what you're getting on to at the moment. I, I believe you just set up your, your a new business. Is that correct? Is this the Wadi Rum Ultra business? Well, first expeditions. That's correct, no? Yeah, that, that is. That was launched about six to eight months ago. But yeah, that is relatively new. and We're in an exciting period at the moment. Great. Tell us a little bit about that. What does that involve? Well, my background for the last five years, I guess you could say, um, has been in the adventure scene, leading expeditions, uh, and I've had a whale of a time. They are, although they're bloody tough, they are seriously rewarding. And it all came about because I wanted to be able to share those sorts of experiences with others and offer them the opportunity to travel around the world, uh, see these amazing places, but, you know, take them off the tourist trail, so to speak. So, you know, there's 10 days jungle trekking in Equatorial Guinea and all sorts of things like that. So it's a bit more hardcore, but uh, and it requires a certain level of fitness. But uh, it, it's also half the price of the majority of these other trips that are offered. Absolutely. Well, I've, I've jumped on the bandwagon myself on this, doing the uh, Wadi Rum Ultra in October, which I'm absolutely buzzing about. Uh, but I think it's an absolutely fantastic idea. I mean, um, it, it's so easy just to to to. Be, be normal and, and go on a standard sort of holiday to Magaluf or, you know, Mallorca or, or one of these places. But, you know, stepping outside your comfort zone and, and doing one of these challenges and going to one of these areas is, is definitely the way I think it's actually going. I mean, people really value the experience, don't they? Totally. People are, people are spending a lot more on experiences as opposed to material things, which is a scene, I think, which the retail industry is is um has picked up on but uh, you just get so much more out of actually pushing yourself so those those holidays that you know you, you mentioned are great for relaxing but you don't actually turn your mind off and you don't challenge yourself if you do those two things and you actually come back feeling a whole lot more refreshed even though ironically you've probably been sweating out your ass for you know 10 days <laughs> but uh, there's definitely something to be said for actually doing something active and, and tough on your time time away from work I completely agree. I completely agree. So that's what you're doing now. Let's go back to the very beginning. The very beginning. My we, birth. <laughs> so you were born in 92. Uh, obviously, yeah. we, we're close friends because we um, we went to primary school together at Arnold House in St. John's Wood. Yeah. Um, played a lot of rugby together. 
you then went off to ha- you went you went off to Harrow. Um, it was very sporty there. You know, t- talk about your development and sort of throughout Harrow and and onto university, and then uh, yeah, let, let's just start with with that. We um, yeah, we last saw each other probably for when we were until recently. You know, back when we were twelve or thirteen, didn't we? Before we split up, we were best best mates. Um, I went to Harrow. Yeah, I blagged my way in. Um, and I was sport through and through. That's that's who I was. <laughs> you know, I, I could sit in a classroom and I was and I was well mannered, and the teachers would like me. But I was never strong academically. Um, so it was all about the rugby, the cricket, the swimming, the water polo. Um, and I loved human endeavour. My my heroes were always people like Sir Ranulph Fiennes, Mike Horn, Scott Shackleton, people that had achieved greatness in in the expedition world in dangerous places basically i just thought it was brave and cool and there was certainly an element of glamour to it all um so when i uh, left school i went traveling as you do i did the normal normal tourist trail but we we did some exciting things such as buying a car in sydney and driving it across the bottom of australia to perth and that was probably my first glimpse of you know rough living on the road that but was, I was lo- that was that a new gap here was it or yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then it was on to Bristol University to, from there. And I found that the first couple of weeks, you know, weren't really what I thought coming back to education was all about. I'd been, you know, getting pissed for a year in Australia and Asia and West Africa. And then it looked like the first year of university, if not all three years, were going to be something similar. And so I became a bit disenchanted with the whole idea. And I, I really wanted to leave again, really which is what I ended up doing. Um, I took a year out of university to, to do my first big challenge. Oh, yes, this big challenge. Two boys in a boat. Um, I, I, I would love to know your process. I mean, like you, you touched on, you know, getting pissed there and um, getting pissed in your first couple of weeks of uni and, and you know, throughout your gap year. I mean, what was the, the process from, you know, going to the normal uni life to, you know, two feet in going to your first major big challenge. It was so mundane and boring and well-trodden that path. And I was always keen to stand out in some way, whether it was, you know, ego or whatever. I didn't want to just be a normal person. And so far, up until I was 20, it was all very normal. You know, there was nothing particularly exciting. But I always thought I should be the kind of person that did exciting stuff. So I, yeah, I remember Googling just uh, one evening, hungover about a month into university, toughest challenges on the planet, and ocean rowing came up. Um, And I couldn't believe this thing existed. I mean, I've seen Perfect Storm, and that was what what I thought all oceans were like um, with George Clooney. But... um, (laughs) So I didn't want to go out there, um, but I realized that it was a thing. People actually row 24-foot carbon fiber or plywood boats 3,000 miles across oceans. And I thought, wow, if I can somehow, you know, attempt, let alone achieve that, then surely I can do anything. Um, so we started planning the long process to getting to the start line. How did you, uh, you know, what was the, the commitment state? I mean, what was the... First commitment stage. I mean, obviously you rode this with Luke Birch, who's another childhood friend of, of mine. I mean, 
it's not as simple as just waking up one morning and to, or one evening and typing in on on Google, you know, challenges. I mean, you must have had to go through a mental process there of, okay, I've actually got to commit myself fully. You know, what was the process there? <clears throat> That's absolutely true. You're doing it right now when when the idea of running this five day ultra marathon, as you mentioned earlier, and then actually starting to train for it, raise money for it, raise money for charity for it. It's a long process. There's a lot more than just thinking that'd be awesome. That is just the the seed that's been planted. I think it's for it's the you don't want to. I've never wanted to let fear get the best of me. Um, and a lot of people think that because I've done some relatively scary things, or they they seem scary from the outside, that I'm fearless. No way. I am just as scared as everyone else. But I would never like the idea of fear taking control of my life and making me not do these things. So you're right. I had to, I remember walking down to the high street bank and paying my registration fee and Luke's registration fee out of my student loan. <laughs> I love that. 500 euros. Um, so if I was pretty financially committed from then on, but we still had to get incredibly prepared. We had to learn how our boat worked, get all these types of certificates. And it was a long year just getting prepped for the start line. But uh, once we got out to La Gomera, that's when the, the deep fear, I guess, of what the hell have we got ourselves into really started to set in. I bet, I bet. And you were 21 at the time. That's correct. 21, was it? Yep. I mean, that's yep. still really, really young to be taking on a, a project of this magnitude. And also, your family, you know, must have had their hesitations from when you said that you wanted to go ahead with something like this, it's just natural. Was it? Was that the case for you? Yeah, of course. They just thought this was another stupid idea from Jamie. Um, but they're, very, <laughs> <laughs> they're very supportive, so they give me a, a few. Cool, that'd be great, Jim. Yeah, fantastic. Um, but then you've got to you've got to show them that you're serious um, in order to get them on board. So some of the legwork, or the most of the legwork, is done by yourself. And once they see, oh wow, this is actually happening then they jump on board. But they were certainly fifth for, for obvious reasons. I mean, Luke and I had a pretty, as you know, we had a, we were stupid kids. So our thing was mucking around doing stupid things. Um, and then, But this was an environment that we were going into where you couldn't make any stupid mistakes because, yeah. you know, if you do, you can die. Um, and people do die doing this. Um, but... Once we persuaded ourselves and showed them that we were serious, um, then they were very, they were okay with it, but it was still a scary period. Yeah, it's funny. People don't really stand in your way when you're moving forward um, to, towards a project of that magnitude. Um, it, it, this wasn't a, a, you know, a silly, stupid idea of yours in, in that sense of the word, because you were raising a hell of a lot of money for charity for a great cause. So, so when you were moving forward... With this project, you know, people probably jumped on the bandwagon and they stopped stepping in your way. That's probably the case. Yeah, I mean, people had never heard of this idea, rowing across an ocean, rowing across the Atlantic. Um, so they, everyone was behind it. They thought we were amazing. Wow, you guys are champions raising all this money. We ended up raising £315,000 for breast cancer care. That is uh, mental. Yeah, it was a record total for the, for the charity, I think it's um, And we did that because we were blogging from the ocean, 
every, every after we got off from our two hour shift we would row two hours on two hours off in our time off you'd have to eat clean yourself check your navigation where you were on the ocean and then if you could bear it you'd type a couple of words on the tiny computer screen oh, and, then, and then send that message up via satellite phone to your Facebook page or something. And we would tell of our, the turmoil we're in, the pain, the boils and the blisters on our feet and our bum um, and just how starved we were of any mental stimulus. You know, if you try sitting on an ergo machine in the gym for two hours, you'll, you'll feel pretty batshit crazy by the time you get off. <laughs> And it's a fairly similar experience. You've just got blue sky to look at and blue sea, and you're totally alone with your thoughts. There is nothing to stimulate you. So really, in many ways, it's a tougher challenge mentally than it was physically. Oh, absolutely. And we're going to definitely touch on the, the mental turmoil that you went through on your, fir- on, 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 on your first journey. Um, before we, we get to the trip itself, I'm really intrigued, and I think a lot of our listeners will, it, love to hear i mean in terms of the training to to get to the start line i mean and also the nutrition i mean you had to put on a hell of a lot of body mass in order to 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 survive out at sea for for that prolonged period talk us a little bit through that i mean what did you have to go through i mean what did you put your body through before you got to the start line well we had to find out exactly what the goals were um you have to find out what sort of body shape you are. People know that, you know, for running or cycling, it's best to be light, um, have elastic ligaments and all those sorts of things. But what the hell do you try and get yourself ready for, for rowing an ocean? We found out that you had to be pretty big. So we went about gaining almost two stone. I think we both gained between 11 and 12 kilos. And weights training, we had to you know, uh, stick to the big compound lifts, the deadlifts, the bench press. We had to get big, strong legs. And this is all so that the body can just cope with this, with the physical stress that it goes through when you're spending two months at sea, rowing 12 hours a day. Um, and we, we lost a huge amount of weight. Um, but we started just by eating a huge amount of food, you know, five or 6,000 calories a day, which, as you know, is never fun. Wow. Um, it's, it's more of a mission, um, you know, than it is for any vanity project. Um, and we so gained, you weren't going for rippling abs, James? <laughs> well, for, for the first six months, I thought I could keep my rippling abs, but then, then my trainer said, uh, yeah, time for the pizzas. <laughs> those, have got to, those have got to go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, those great abs there, those are not okay. <laughs> we need to get some flab. So it was relatively clean diet, you know, with a lot of fish, a lot of, chicken, a huge amount of vegetables, um, up until about two months before we left. And then it was just get those calories on. So pizzas, I was melting ice creams down on the hob in the kitchen and just drinking those like milkshakes. That was, that's a good way to get a a sugar rush and consume a thousand calories. I mean, in reality, like people, a lot of people would be like, Oh, that sounds absolutely awesome. But I can imagine actually after a week or so that actually becomes quite difficult yeah, it's, it's pretty miserable. If you go if you go to Byron and have one of those milkshakes, you just never want it to end. Um, <laughs> but, but you would want this to end. <laughs> I, I can imagine. Well, no, just, you know, obviously nutrition's um, one of my passions, studying nutrition. So obviously the effect that having a whole tub of Ben and Jerry's, drinking it like a milkshake, I mean, you must have had sugar highs and lows. It must have been quite difficult to, to deal with. Mate, I wish it was Ben and Jerry's. It was Waitrose Basics. Or Saints <laughs> Basics. That's, 
part of the reason why I was so tough. <laughs> if Ben Jerry's, I'd still be doing it now. <laughs> You'd still be doing it now, absolutely, fair enough. Wow, okay, so that's what you went through beforehand. Getting to La Camera, what was the date, roughly? Was it, I can't remember off the top of my head. I think it was about the 20th of November, 2013. Okay, what, was your, what were your feelings at the time of, you know, getting to the start line? I mean, that must have been, you know, you've never done anything like this. The nerves must have been there. I can't believe they wouldn't have been. Yeah, it was maybe even more than nerves. It was just fear. Um, when you talk about something for a huge period of time, which we had to do to generate sponsors, um, you kind of forget that actually you're going to have to put the goods on the table at the end of the day. And that's what it was. All the back office work had been done when we were dropped off at the airport that, that for that early flight to Tenerife. Um, and saying goodbye to mum and dad and the family was pretty strange. It wasn't, there was no immediate fear because we had two weeks of preparation um, in the Canary Islands before we were going, but it was certainly, it felt like a, a special moment. Like the next time we saw each other, if we were going to see each other, it was going to be pretty mega. Um, but really, once we said goodbye, you know, Luke is such a great person to do this with. He's just a ball of laughs. He's very relaxed human being. Some would say too relaxed at times. <laughs> uh, and we just started having a good time um, and generally getting ourselves prepared. And then once we got to Lagomera, we met up with our boat, which had been shipped a month before. Then we started just you know, going through the equipment um, militantly, every piece, checking that it works, checking that we knew everything about it, check, knowing that we knew exactly where it was in the boat in case we had an emergency and we had to grab it and get off ASAP. Um, but you certainly, there was certainly a sense of dread. Interestingly, the, the first 12 nights in our hotel, I didn't sleep much and I would wake up, you know, with butterflies every morning. A couple of nights I actually vomited just because I was so nervous. Um, and then the, fair enough. Yeah, and then the and then the night before we were due to leave was the best night's sleep I'd ever had. How strange. How strange. I think I just I think I just accepted that you know, we were going that within 12 hours time we would start rowing, we'd lose sight of land and humans and then we wouldn't see them again for a very long time. Maybe at that point you'd uh, done all your, you know, last minute preparations, so you probably felt prepared. Did you feel prepared? We were very well prepared. Um, we were we were one of the best prepared teams. Definitely, out of I think twelve or fourteen boats that were there, we were definitely in the top three best prepared, which is where you want to start. But when you leave, when you go on the ocean, it's all about discipline. It's all about procedures, safety procedures. We have a little hat, a little hatch at one end with a cabin where we would sleep bit like a coffin and you have to keep that shut at all times because if a if we capsize if a wave turns us over and that cabin is open the boat will fill up with water and it won't turn back over again it's things like that and making sure that you're strapped on a hundred percent of the time so that if you get thrown overboard then you're not gonna you're not gonna be left alone swimming in the ocean um so it's it's safety and, and discipline which is i think where a lot of people doubted us because we were 21 year old kids that had been played the foolish type of people for a while yeah. and now we had to do a very serious job well absolutely well let, let's sort of fast forward to the end and then come back to the journey itself you guys did complete this in 54 days didn't you so from yeah. that Lagomera to Antigua 
Bang on. And that was a world, that still is a world record for the youngest pair of to do so in the quickest time. I wish last year that someone just broke that. That's a disaster. Very, very unhappy about that. I'm, I might go knocking on their door. Yeah, mate. Well, to be, you know, records are there to be broken. But, but, but you did it at the time, you know, it was a world record. So in order to get there, talk us through the journey. You mean, like you've just touched on previously, you know, it was, it was more a mental challenge than it was physical. But in terms of the physical aspect, you know, talk us through, you know, the, 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 the demand of, that the rowing took on your body. That, that, that's something that I would definitely love to hear. Yeah, it was the first week was hellish. Uh, I mean, whenever we, we go to a different university or we go on holiday or wherever, there's a little bit of culture change. Some people call it culture shock if you're going into areas where it's very different from what you're used to. And that is what it was like. We couldn't eat any food for the first week. We were vomiting because of the seasickness. We were exhausted and sleep deprived because we weren't being able to, we weren't able to get much sleep on our two hours off. Um, and that's when the magnitude of what we had really sunk in. I think I remember waking up after a days of sleep after maybe on day four and realizing just how flipping far and how little we'd come in those four days. It looked like we had the entire Atlantic chart to go. And I'm just breaking down in tears thinking, I don't know if this is possible. And if it was something like a marathon, I guess you just stop and you know get in the support car. But there is no one around you on the ocean. You can't do anything. Uh, so you just have to, you just have to crack on in your miserable state and hope that your emotions change. And they do. It's an absolute roller coaster. Um, I bet. I bet. But, but it was, in terms of you know what, what a lot of people, because obviously I followed you the whole time you you were doing this thing. And it's something I didn't realise until the end that it it was two hours on two hours off continuously for 54 days. I mean, that, I mean, I, I honestly, how you kept on getting back up into that, not well, saddle, so to say, and, and, and keep rowing in day in, day out is just something that completely makes my mind boggle. I mean, what was that like when Luke was knocking on the door and saying, mate, your shift? I mean, what was the thought, what was the mental process there? Fuck, get me off this fucking boat. <laughs> I, I fucking hate Luke. I fucking hate the ocean. I fucking hate this boat. I hate this. What am I doing? That yeah, was yeah, you doing. still you still did it every single well you, well you can't stop though. You and you don't want to let your teammate down. Um but that is those are the thoughts that would run through my head every single time I got the five minute warning. Um you just cannot believe how crap you feel and you want nothing more than to not go and row for another two hours. But you have to switch cabins. Luke comes in, he sleeps, he starts eating, um, and he cleans himself, and then you start your two hours of back and forth, back and forth. And this is where it's physically you can deal with these things if your mind is okay. But my iPods broke after about three weeks in, and then all my audio books, which I spent months downloading, thousands of songs which I was listening to, that was all gone, and I had nothing but the silence in my head to go through. It took me about two weeks to have gone through every experience I could remember in my life, breaking it down. And then I was just frying mentally. It was such a horrible experience. Um, I didn't want to ask Luke for his iPod because if I broke his, then that would be really bad for Team Dimensions. Uh, Luke and I also weren't talking at that stage. We had this relationship basically throughout our entire 
lives where we we would wind each other up a lot. But it was just, you know, how we got our laughs. But you don't necessarily <laughs> want to wind each other up when you're out in the ocean. But we were even better at that than we were doing it on land. Words to each other. Probably fuck you, no fuck you. Um, went through a pretty long period of silence. Um, so it turned into very much a solo journey from there. Which must have uh, made it even more difficult. Yeah, when you when you, you go go you get a partner for something like this so you don't have to be on your own, so you've got someone to talk to and share the moments with. But uh it turned into a bit of a solo journey. I mean, the mental, the mental uh, stamina. I mean, being alone with your own thoughts, no music, no nothing. That in itself must have been the toughest element of, of the journey. It is, and it's something you can't train for because yeah, absolutely. unless you went and locked yourself in a white room and told yourself you weren't leaving for two weeks, mm. you, that might be able to simulate it. But in life, we have stimulus all the time, whether it's our alarm clocks, our t- stomachs telling us for breakfast or coffee we have to get to work we have deadlines we are constantly stimulated without knowing it um, but out there we had nothing sure uh, and and you know destroying the relationship with your partner because we were immature and you know made was probably not a good move no that was a really bad move <laughs> and it took once we got to land we didn't speak for six months really we just wow. split to other ends of the island. I did not know that. I did yeah. not know that. How interesting. But we're absolutely best friends again now, and, and I wouldn't change a thing. He's, but, but we got on each other's... Um, Tits, on, per se. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. Wow. So, so let, let's talk about the last, uh, you know, the last leg of the journey. Talk us through the feelings there. I mean... You always had the the knowledge that you were well the focus of arriving in, in Antigua. I mean, did you ever believe that you were going to arrive? I mean, what what were your thoughts when you saw you know a hundred miles to go or, or or you know the last the last fifty miles? Well, what were the thoughts going through your head? You must have been absolutely ecstatic. I never believed or allowed myself to believe that we would get there. You know, I heard so much in our preparation that in. And in endurance sport that you just take each hour as it comes, each day as it comes, each week as it comes. And I never imagined the finish line because if you try and think that far ahead, you become very depressed about your current situation. Um, So when we started knocking down the miles and and being 300 miles from land, 200 miles from land, 50 miles from land, it was really only in the last night when I watched the sun going down, as I had for every 53 nights before that, that I started believing that, wow, we could actually achieve this. This dream, which has quite literally been a dream for two and a half years, might actually come true. And there's no way to describe what it was like, you know, uh, coming into the harbour, seeing the flares, the horns from the super yachts, the silhouettes of our family and friends in the background. So hundreds of people are there to greet us. And... I've never experienced when you're truly, you know, under the spotlight, when you are the focus. Um, but that's what it felt like. And it's been such a team journey getting there. Uh, Luke and I had done the final part, but a huge amount of people don't even get to the start line for this. And stepping off onto land was actually, we almost fell over because you don't, you haven't walked for about two months. So all the muscle in your calves wears away and you have to, you walk a bit like a drunk Captain Jack Sparrow does for a while. <laughs> 
Um, but it was a euphoric feeling. My everything I dreamed of came true. Um, very, and the work, very emotional scenes as well. Very, very. My mum, you know, hugging me, saying, "You don't know what you've put me through. You don't know what you've put me through in the best way." But you know, I was thinking, "Well, I've been through a hell of a lot now, just now." Um, <laughs> it's not. It's not about you, mum. Yeah, but you haven't just rode it. <laughs> well, I remember. I remember seeing those scenes when I was lying in my bed at university, hungover, and thinking, "I've got, <laughs> I've got to get my bloody act together." And, and now you are. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, four years down the line. Uh, but no, yeah, it was it was a hell of a hell of a, hell hell of a thing to watch. Um, I mean, it sent it to down my eyes. Obviously, it was great to see you guys land safely on shore, and it was just so fantastic to see that you'd achieved this goal. Um, you know, I could I couldn't have been prouder, and I know so many people back home were just absolutely in feeling exactly the same as me. Talk us a little bit through, you know, the process for the weeks after. I mean, it must have been it must have been difficult to to sort of let it sink in and then sort of start refocusing on on what was next. I suppose. Exactly, um, that's a good way of putting it. A uh... It was culture shock getting onto the boat, as I just said a few minutes ago. But then that boat became our home, our world, everything we were used to. So we then experienced culture shock when we got back onto land. Um, and you've just got to get used to all the things which you don't have, like a, like being able to sit on a toilet when you want to go to the loo, as opposed to a bucket, and then having to chuck it. We can now flush it. <laughs> and, and when you want to eat, you can actually cook up real food as opposed to rehydrating dust. Um, and water doesn't have to have a twinge of salt in it and lukewarm. You can actually have ice cubes and you sleep in a bed as opposed to a horrible boiling hot cabin. Um, and getting used to just walking again and being around other humans because you're, you're quite uh, spaced out, I remember feeling, for a good two weeks. And just with human interaction is slightly different. You're not, as, you're not as on it because I guess your mind is a little bit in disarray. Um, but... The process of allowing it to sink in, I think it was a very gradual one. When you, when you, you achieve something big, it, you never realize what you've done and the magnitude of it straight away. It's always a lengthy process. And in some ways, I don't think I'll ever you know, truly relive and understand and let it sink in what we've achieved. But it, was, it didn't take long for me to start thinking about, right, that was a great feeling. How do I replicate that great feeling? What's next? Absolutely. So, so from there, you 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 had a you had a, a little while before you went back to university because I remember seeing you at the time, all washed up with your your Jack, Captain Jack Sparrow beard and and uh, <laughs> uh, and actually I think I saw you with a, we had a couple of beers and I had a great laugh about it. You told me the whole story, um, but I mean at that point you didn't know what was next and, and and obviously you went on to another adventure like a couple of like a, I think it was a was it a month after. Yeah, I think yeah, a couple of months after, but very soon. It's uh, I had six months before my university course resumed. They'd allowed me to take the year out, and I didn't want to just, you know, get a job at a pub or get an internship somewhere. I wanted more of this feeling that I'd that I'd had more of this natural heroin, mm. um, and so I decided to do another expedition. And talking about it now, it's you know. I, it must sound like I lack creativity because I decided to go and do another ocean. <laughs> um, there's only there was only the Pacific and the Indian Ocean left. The Pacific was three times the length of the Atlantic, so I didn't want anything to do with that. But the Indian, 
the Indian Ocean was just a little bit longer than that and tougher and more remote. There are fewer shipping lanes. It's generally considered to be quite a lot more dangerous. Um, and so I went about getting a team together. Luke was unfortunately back to university, but we also weren't talking. And then I was also sure that I didn't want to do it as a pair again. I wanted to do it as a four. I wanted more people around. I wanted to try and you know, enjoy any part of ocean rowing. And part of enjoying it is to have more people on board, usually, because you can share experiences, have a laugh. Um, it's not such a, an alone experience. And so literally within two to three months later, we were standing on this little beach in, in Exmouth, Australia, which is way out on the, on the East Coast, pretty much in the middle of nowhere, a thousand miles north of Perth. And it only exists to support the mining industry. And we had our little boat there. Unlike the Atlantic, there was no race. There was no press. There was just us four guys and our, and our manager, our race manager, a guy called Tony Humphreys. And we watched the sun come up about 6 a.m. And then we just drifted off quietly on our own. No one to see us leave. Um, and we were on there for almost three months. That was one hell of a long expedition and a huge amount went wrong we had some nasty weather um, and we had to end up redirecting where we finished we were aiming for mauritius um, but because the weather had from the, which all comes from the southern ocean from antarctica pushed us so far north we ended up having to go to the seychelles and the seychelles are actually in a, the vicinity of piracy uh, they're about, you know, less than a thousand miles off the coast of Somalia. So we had to take out piracy insurance whilst we were out there. <laughs> Just a quick policy. Yeah, exactly. Um, is that car insurance or most? <laughs> I've got a piracy option. <laughs> but uh, that was a, that, that, you know, getting through that experience, which I found very difficult to get my head around because it, it felt like I was just, I just put myself in the same pain and mental and physical torture that I'd just been in on the Atlantic originally. Yeah. What was the process? What was the mental process? I mean, what were the thoughts going through your head? Were you like, God, I can't believe I'm doing this again. Or was it? Yeah, that's it. Exactly. <laughs> I cannot believe I'm doing this again. That's what it was. But it just felt like I'd had a long two hours off sure. those three months. And then I was back on. Um, so, you know, but being with a team as opposed to just with one other person really changed everything. We were able to, you know, have moments of fun. And it was it was less emotionally draining. But physically, uh, you know, we were wet the entire time. We were just being hounded by the waves. And it's salt water and salt destroys your skin and your equipment. Um, we broke almost all of our oars. So we were on our very last set by the time we got in. Um, and it, it was, it, this one, I believe, was unsupported. So, yeah, so, they were, so I know it's a stupid question, but can you just clarify exactly what that means? Yeah, I mean, both of ours were unsupported, but there was the option of having a safety yacht come and see us if we were in trouble on the Atlantic. But there was no safety yacht on the Indian Ocean. Um, and the Indian Ocean is vast and, <laughs> and desolate. Um, between Australia and Africa, there is not a huge amount. There's only Antarctica way below. It's where the Malaysian Airlines MH370 went down and has still not been found. You know, wow. if a plane can go missing in, in an area that big, then, you know, imagine what a relatively tiny ocean rowing boat, what could go wrong with that? That's, that's a crazy thing to think about. <clears throat> it's crazy. It is. 
and there are there aren't many ships either. So if you need a rescue, it's going to be a container ship or a cargo ship. Um, but there are so few of those as well that uh, really you're on your own. Just a couple of uh, questions here. So firstly, being I want to go back to the piracy thing because I never even thought of that um, as it's been a problem on a, on a on an ocean road. Did you did you did you have any close shaves or was there any issues with that? I was I was skippering that, and so I felt quite responsible for the other three crew members: Alex Simpson, Hamish Kite, and Angus Collins. Um, and I'd have a couple of conversations with a couple of their mothers and fathers, you know, and they were they were very lovely, but they were based around that. Do you have to take our child away and put them in this sort of danger? Um, yes, I do. <laughs> but, but so I felt responsible for them. And when we were when we were going into this territory where we'd heard that boats had had issues with, with you know, strange looking unidentified shipping vessels that's what they call themselves uh, i did feel responsible and slightly fearful and uh, one evening we saw this we saw this lights in the distance still a thousand miles from land so it has to be a vessel or something like that uh usual procedure is to get them on the radio if they get within a certain distance which they did it's something like this big ship big ship big ship this is little ship little ship little ship uh, you appear to be on our course do you see us on your radar over Usually ships come back, yes, we see you, or no, we don't see you, um, in which case we take, we try and take a big berth around them. Um, but this guy or this ship, nothing came back. I tried again, again, nothing. Um, and then it was, it was coming towards us, and there was only Angus on shift with me, and we didn't feel the need, and we didn't really want to stress the other two who were sleeping out. Um, so we just carried on rowing, and this boat got closer and closer, and and it ended up getting about 100 metres away from us, which on the ocean is a seriously close call. And we actually ended up turning all our navigational equipment off so we weren't emitting any light at all. And we were just rowing off the, you know, off the direction of the wind on our face. And it was scary because, you know, the way these pirates operate is to have these boats that look like shipping vessels and then they, they tow outboards and they do their attack from, from an outboard and then bring it back to this mothership, just like Captain Phillips. Um, and this freaky thing, you know, passed very close to us. Uh, it was very dark, so we were literally under the cover of night, and we just rode as fast as we could away from us. And then the only other strange incident, uh, incident after that was about three days before we reached the Seychelles. My oar hit something, and I turned around to have a look at it, and it was a it was a life vessel um, with no one on it. It was just a, a life raft with a with a, a an emergency water maker attached to it. And that was quite an eerie feeling because you think, wow, that either that person's either died and been swept off or eaten or something, or they've been rescued. Uh, but it was incredible. I wonder, you know, I wondered to myself how many other life vessels with people on it there are drifting around the ocean. How interesting! How interesting! Wow, that must have been one hell of an experience with that, especially that pirate ship. Wow, that must have that would have that would have done me. I would have been I would have been hiding in the bunker most probably. <laughs> anyway, so. My next question uh, is involved with your finish. So you, at this point, you had already been, you know, world rep, two-time world record holder. Yeah. Um, I assume, knowing you, you probably broke another six or seven world records on the, on this one. <laughs> there, was another, there was another three or four, I think. But wow. uh, well, which ones were they? Just just clear them up for us. Uh, we were the fastest 
fastest four-man teams row across the Indian Ocean, the youngest four-man teams to do so. And then we were the first ever unsupported row from Australia to the Seychelles. Wow. Which, which was a good feeling. It was nice, but you don't do these things for the records. My God, I certainly don't do these things for the records. Um, mm. You just get a, I had that same feeling. It was slightly less, you know, because you've already had that first hit. So therefore you need more to get to the same level. Um, yeah, you touched on that heroin earlier, the natural heroin. Yeah. Um, and it, 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 if, you know, is it was it you know was it was it tough how do i phrase this was it is it is it a burden after after that first trip i mean would you think you'll ever reach that same sort of high again i think i don't think i'll reach that same high again because you know the first is is usually the best um this then you have to put yourself through more pain and more mental and physical torture to receive a similar hit because because if it, because things become easier basically, and you, the the harder something is, the more great the feeling is of of accomplishing it. Absolutely. Um, I don't know if it's a burden. It's it certainly breeds an element of selfishness because you know doing these these hard long trips involve being away from home for a long period of time, um, and they're quite self indulgent because you, know, you may be raising money for charity and helping thousands of other people in the in the funds that you raise, but ultimately you're doing it for yourself. And for that feeling that you get, um, I don't, you know, I, I think you can compare it to soldiers at war. They talk about, you know, the adrenaline of, of rounds flying over them and, and coming under contact and those sorts of things. And I think that to them becomes addictive because they're having it week in, week out. And they suddenly need that. They, they feel they need that rush when they come home. Uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's comparable to that, but there's an, there's an element of truth in, you know, having experienced this amazing feeling you naturally want more i think you can you can link that back to any element of work you know selling an ad in a magazine or um or bringing on a new client in your workspace that makes you feel good um and it makes you want to replicate that no sure absolutely so yeah so you you arrive you break all these records what was the mindset then jay i mean i know i know that you did go back to uni but but you were never really you know the same. You ne you never really were the the normal standard student way. No, I'd, I'd spent whilst students had been going through the paces and doing their exams and their coursework. I'd spent 125 days of that year at sea with only ever 65 minutes sleep at a time. So, as you can imagine, it's about as bizarre an environment going back to university and being told that you've got to get this deadline in. Um, as you can possibly imagine, and I, I probably not. I probably quietly rebelled and you know thought you know screw you. Uh, I know what I want to do in life. I want to be an explorer. Uh, <laughs> I don't give a toss about about essays or or exams. Um, and so I finished my degree, um, which which was a miracle that I even got through it. But my head wasn't in it at all, and neither was my heart. Um, I knew that I wanted to, to live outdoors and push myself and, and raise money for charity and get sponsors on board and become a brand ambassador and live this, you know, semi, I guess, you know, public life. Um, things have, have changed slightly since then, but I still have that total love of the outdoors and, and of pushing myself physically. Awesome. Absolutely awesome. I think that's completely fair enough, to be honest. I think <clears throat> after <clears throat> two incredible experiences such as that, I don't think anyone in their right mind could probably return to, to you know, 
deadlines and essays without having a slight sort of um, resentment towards them and, and uh, you know, not really understanding the point because you just done something that was much bigger, that you felt that was much bigger than it. So I think that's completely fair enough. I would be exactly the same way. Um, so from then on, the next couple of years, you, you, you did a couple more explorations, adventures. Uh, you did uh, seven ma- uh, sort of seven marathons in seven days. Is that, is that correct? That was one that stands out. That was one of those, yeah. I only got halfway through due to injury. but uh, Rookie. But that was the aim, yeah. <laughs> Great, okay. So, and, and, and most recently, you've obviously been on um, SAS Hell Week. Um, is, is that what it's, No, Ultimate Hell it's, Week on BBC yeah. Two. Absolutely awesome, mate. I watched... I watched three or four episodes and it's unreal experience. Unreal. What do you mean you watched three or four episodes? It's a six-part series, well, Hayden. I haven't quite finished it yet, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, just talk to us about the, you know, talk, talk to us about the experiences you had on this because it, it was it was really, you know, it wasn't fabricated in any way, shape or form. It was an extremely, extremely intense experience from beginning to end. This was, yeah, I'd never done anything like this before. And this was just me going back to my mantra that it's usually, when you get opportunities, it's usually better in life to say yes, because you never know what comes from them and you end up broadening your horizons, meeting people. And often things come, whether it's job opportunities or work opportunities or whatever, from encounters with people, their relationships. So the more people you know, the better. Um, and I had this opportunity to to be a participant on this this show, Special Forces Ultimate Hell Week, which was basically, um, it does what it says on the tin. They took 22 of supposedly the fittest uh, British men and women over to South Africa and a Special Forces instructor from six different countries would beast us for 48 hours. And it's a last man standing type thing. The first guy was the sat from the South African Reckies. Uh, I think then we had the Polish Special Forces then the American Green Berets and the Korean Special Forces, then the French uh, Special Forces, which uh, I was about to make a French joke there. <laughs> <laughs> and then the Australian. Best, best not to. Yeah, I don't know. Do you have any <laughs> listeners? <laughs> potentially, potentially. Okay. But uh, it, was a, um, it was a horrible experience. <laughs> I wish I could say it was great and I enjoyed it. We were kept in a pressure cooker environment in a military in military barracks for 14 days, and we were beasted. We had very little sleep. We were put in very miserable, uncomfortable positions, body positions, whether it be the freezing Atlantic Ocean, doing surf torture, or carrying, you know, 35 kilogram backpacks up and down a 10 kilometer course in the desert in the searing heat. It was it was just a test to see who breaks you. Um, but what's interesting is. The best athletes, the strongest guys, the fittest guys, the best swimmers, after about halfway through, they were gone. They'd either given up or they dropped out due to injury. And then you had the second half of not particularly talented people, uh, not particularly fast, not the person that could do the most chin-ups, but the people that had it mentally, the non-quitters. Um, and they say this again and again, you know, and you can relate this again to any part of life. It's it's not the most talented. It's not the cleverest. It's not the fastest. It's the people that are most willing to put the, the hard work in and the, those are the guys that won't quit. Um, and ultimately, that's what it came down to. It came down to 
once we got to a group of non-quitters, it was, I will not give up. I will never give up. Mental toughness. Exactly. Exactly. It was, that's what it was. Um, and I had, I didn't necessarily know whether in this new style of challenge, whether I was going to be able to cope because it was a very different physical challenge, but it turned out that, you know, I, I was, I was tossed off, voted out by the fucking French on the second or on the, at the end of the last episode. Um, so I made it down to the last seven. Um, but the important thing with that thing is that you don't quit because when you quit, you then go over that again and again. Could I have carried on? I'm sure I could have carried on. And that breeds regret. And you never want to regret, regret anything. So if you're fired, that's okay. But you don't want to give up. Completely agree. I mean, the, the one episode uh, that, that really just made me think, bloody hell, how is this guy doing it? was the sleep deprivation that the... Uh, was it the groom, the Polish groom? Yeah, yeah. yeah. They they would uh, they would come in every twenty minutes and drag you for, in and out in a sort of sleep deprived state and get you to do a task or a fitness activity. Talk us through that one. What was that like? That must have been. I mean, I know I cannot. I am a person who needs my sleep, so I can't function fully without you know a decent amount. God, you know, I don't even want to know what it was like only being able to sleep 20 or 30 minutes in between doing these tasks. It must have been very difficult. Yeah, it was. that was the idea. The idea is for them to, to break you down, to take everything that you need away, food, sleep, warmth, and then they test you physically and mentally. And if you can do it, if you can complete those tasks in a state where you're deprived of the three things that you need the most, then their idea is that, well, you're going to be able to do it in real life then. Um, because hopefully it won't be as tough as this. Um, but when they were, t when we had no sleep and we were made to do press ups and sit ups and marching on the spot for 45 minutes at a time, that's all developed to make you think, I don't need to be here. It's all developed to make you want to quit. Sure. Um, and then strangely, the last task when the sun was coming up, when we'd had something like 55 minutes sleep in total that night we'd been beasted physically was for us to knit and we had to knit a patch an army patch a logo onto a t-shirt and that requires a completely different skill set you know you, you've got to use eyesight to get the thread through the through the pin head then you've got to be able to concentrate not to prick yourself and the idea is that right i know you can now do stuff physically with no sleep no food no warmth but how are you going to deal mentally because this is not just a physical game um, and it was very interesting to see how some people you get, some people were able to do it physically, but some people would just break down mentally. And I found myself getting quite stressed out with the, with the knitting, uh, because I don't do much knitting. Back <laughs> no way. And when, and then when, when they said you need to prepare yourself for this show, I was doing a lot of runs and sit ups and swimming and, and not a whole lot of knitting. Yeah. Shock so, shocking. That's shocking. <laughs> so, uh, it, it was interesting being tested in those different ways. Mm. Brilliant. No, it's, honestly, for anybody who hasn't seen this show, BBC Two, 100% give it a watch. It will definitely broaden your perspective on, uh, on, on you know, mental and physical toughness, I, I suppose. I do want to clear one thing up for you. Well, not, well, bring it to our listeners' attention. On the first episode, you do slightly uh, embarrass yourself slightly by uh, getting getting reprimanded by the by the officer oh for, for goodness being, sake Hayden. For, for being one of the five weakest in the initial task Do, is there anything you need to clear up here or is it was, were you just not in top physical nick jamie i will welcome the opportunity that you've given me here to clear up this scenario <laughs> but, uh, 
because it, it's something that I struggle to sleep with even to this day. Um, we were just given a task and uh, at the end of the task, we were told to line up in numerical order in the, in the places that we came in in this task. I was about fourth at the top. And I thought the guy had said alphabetical order. So being Sparks S, I send myself right down to the end of the queue. He then selects the five of us at the bottom, which happened to be me, S, because I was right down there. And he bollocks us, and, and we, we escape the first episode by the skin of our teeth. I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to be voted off this show in the first ten minutes, all because I don't know the difference between numerical and alphabetical, but God's sakes. And the stick that I got from my mates and my family members was, was almost tough to get through because I was getting messages left, right, and center. You, how could you, how, you know, I thought you were fit, Jim. How the hell are you at the bottom? Of the- <laughs> I'm, oh. not, I'm not going to lie. That was my first thought. I was like, he's... See, exactly. That's yeah. so annoying. Mm-hmm. No, <laughs> well, well, I'm glad you've had a chance to clear that up, Jamie. Uh, yeah. You've rode an Atlantic Ocean. You've rode a, uh, an Indian Ocean, but you don't know the difference between numerical and alphabetical. So I think we need to, uh, we need to crack on to that as your next challenge. Anyway, <laughs> moving on, moving on swiftly. Um, so you're stepping away from all your challenges and adventures. I mean, me and you in the past, you know, we've spoken about uh, the importance of, uh, you know, habits and rituals and, and stuff like this. I know it's, it's very important to us both as people. I mean, are, are there any books that you can recommend for our listeners that, that, that you've you know, they have affected you personally and, and just touch on a little bit on your habits and rituals because I'm sure people will be in, intrigued to hear. Yeah, I've, 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 um, we both like uh, Tim Ferriss's Tools, Tools of the Titans, which is where he discusses people's rituals, um, successful people's rituals, successful uh, tech designers, business leaders, um, athletes, actors, and sees if there are any patterns, tries to identify patterns. Um, so that us mere mortals can copy those, I guess. But uh, I do. I've actually found that in my 25th year of life, I've, I'm the most disciplined I've ever been. Uh, I always liked the idea of waking up early and working out and having a strict diet and getting 10 hours of sleep um, every night. But I, I, until this year, and I would say, yeah, until a year ago, um, I was never able to implement that in my life because I enjoyed having fun too much. And if someone gave me the opportunity to go have a few beers at night, you know, on a, on a Monday or Tuesday night, I would take that up. Um, now I don't. But my my routine is actually fairly set now. I'm, I'm up between either 5.50 to 6.15. And uh, I'm either running uh, down to the Thames, around, on the Thames, and then back up to my home in Islington. Or I'm on the bike doing laps of Regent's Park. But one of the ways I get myself out of bed, because it's difficult when, you, when you're on your own, you haven't got any coach to answer to, is to organize to meet up with friends. Now, I have to go to different friends uh, on each days because none of them want to get up at 5.50 um, and run with me five days a week. Uh, so I will see you know, someone on a Monday for a run. I'll see someone else on a Tuesday and a Wednesday for a cycle. And the cycle goes like that. Um, and I just feel that by waking up whilst everyone else is still sleeping, getting out there, uh, organizing myself in my head whilst I exercise, coming back, having a healthy breakfast, which is porridge, takes two minutes, um, making my bed, and then getting to work, you know, half an hour before everyone. I've then had five victories um, to start off my day. And humans love winning. It's a natural feeling. 
when we win at anything, no matter how big or small, that makes us feel good. And we want to replicate that. So if by the time we've sat down at our desk, we've had five victories already, then our day is likely to continue on that course. Um, and it's a little bit, it's, a lot of people see that as, you know, egotistical or slightly narcissistic, just, you know, winning, winning, God, you're a freak. Um, but actually, that, that it's gentle, small ways. You know, you know, I remember hearing this amazing speech from a, a Navy SEAL commander about why we make our guys uh, make their beds immaculately. And that's because it's a pleasurable experience and it's seen in, in our mind as a, as a victory. And winners want to keep on winning. So if you can if you can start the day off well, then that day, that week, that month, your life is probably going to be on an upward trend. I completely agree. I mean, Tools of Titans uh, is a fantastic book. And the majority of, of these rituals and habits of these people, <clears throat> a lot of these things come in the morning. And, you know, just being around successful people my whole life and, and growing up around them, you actually start watching them and you, you see that they have a procedure in the morning. Uh, and, and it's not, it is a win. Yes, you are correct. But the habit itself, by ticking these things off, it's a, it's a mental achievement just to, to get them done in the morning. It, it, you're right. It makes you feel better. I mean, I've I just read a book, which is fantastic as well. It's called um, Rediscovering Our Greatest Strength, Willpower. And it actually talks about another explorer, Stanley. Um, and it, it states that every single morning, whatever condition he was in, whether he be, be, be getting, you know, shot out with bow and arrows, whether he be, you know, soaking wet, whether he be starving hungry, he would always, always, always shave, which I, which I think is, is, is such a, a, an interesting thing because what it did is it, by doing this, he was, he was achieving, he, he was achieving something in the morning, he was winning, he was, um, he was getting his, you know, his, his morning habit in. Uh, but what it would do is it would conserve willpower for the rest of the day um, for, 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 for whatever would come his way because he just didn't know, which I, I thought was is, is a really interest, in, interesting um, fact to hear. Uh, and you must have done similar things on the boat. I mean, when, you were, when the days that you just did not want to get up, I mean, was there anything similar there that you just did every single day on the boat? Absolutely. I mean, we would make water because you wait, You have to make water through something that takes solar energy from our batteries. So you'd make water at the, when the sun's at the highest point of the day, around midday. Uh, you'd eat five minutes into every time you had off shift. You would you stick to your routine um, in an attempt to control what you can control. Mm. So in environments like war or when he's in the jungle being fired at by bows and arrows, so much is out of his control. Mm that you try and control everything. Exactly, what you can control, yeah. And, um, and, 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 you know, it's the same, we, just to bring it a little bit, slightly off topic, but, but, you know, we look at people like Steve Jobs, the late Steve Jobs, and Simon Cowell, and people like Philip Green. These guys would wear the same outfits um, every single day. Mm. And, and they, you know, they say, you know, people that have studied this, it's because that's one less decision Absolutely. That they have in the morning. Ego depletion. What's what's that? What's ego depletion? What, so, take- so, 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 so <clears throat> ego depletion is where um, essentially we have to make so many decisions every day. So exactly stuff like picking stuff to wear to work. You know, what food are we going to eat? When are we going to get our next meal? 
just all this sort of stuff that if you can if you can plan ahead and you can already have these decisions made your your ego becomes less depleted which means that you have more room to make better decisions on the, oh, okay. on, on the things you can't control is that basically what you just said but it is i completely agree no carry on no no that makes that makes complete sense yeah um and i guess when you're making 1500 decisions a day you can get rid of 20 of those by having your routine um but yeah i totally agree because we feel more comfortable in our in our comfort zone knowing doing what we know already so if you, if i can be in the jungle which is perhaps the most uncomfortable place you can be where you don't know about predators you don't know about the weather you don't know about the climate um so you know nothing effectively if i can do five things which i do back in my flat in london out in the jungle such as wake up maybe do some chin-ups on a branch shave have breakfast drink a pint of water to rehydrate myself i am familiarizing myself with that environment and it's becoming less alien to me and i therefore feel more capable to cope in it um, and to excel and it's so interesting that all these different elements and all these different procedures and routines can be applied to anyone in any environment at any age, gender, religion, it doesn't matter. And, uh, you know, which is why Tools of the Tizers, I think, is a really good book to, to have a flip through if you're interested about learning about some of these rituals. Absolutely. These will go in the, sh- that will go in the show notes 100%. I think that's something that everybody should read. Um, Jay, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on. Um, there's one question that I want to wrap up with. Uh, I want to know what's next, man. What is the next goal? What's the next big achievement? What's on the agenda? Talk to me. Well, I usually work on a couple of things at once, which, well, I always work on a couple of things at once. So one of them is I'm, I, I own this ultra marathon, which you are currently training for, the Wadi Rum Ultra, which is a 260-kilometer run in Jordan each year. And you're, you're getting more and more prepped each week. So I'm, I have, I'm really enjoying it. I'm not going to lie. Oh, mate, I was, I'm going through the logistics, the ground staff, everything at the moment, and you're going to have an absolute blast. It's going to be obviously extremely tough, which you already know, but it's going to be the adventure of a lifetime, mate. The best week you can imagine. Can't wait. Uh, and, then I, and then I also work. Um, God, what projects am I working on at the moment? I've forgotten, mate. We'll just, <laughs> we'll just stick to the Wadi Rum. Yeah, let's stick to that as the main goal. Um, hopefully you'll remember the other projects you're working on later in the day. Uh, <laughs> it's the trip next year that I'm doing, the new expedition. That's a slow burn. That's something that I spend maybe a couple of hours on a week. What's, what's the new expedition? I, I am planning to go on a, on a big one next year, a big six month. There's something in Africa. I'm marvellous. I'm, I'm eager to hear about that later down the line. My friend... It's been an absolute pleasure. Appreciate you coming on because I know you're a busy man. Until next time, which will there will definitely be a next time. Um, lots of love and cheers for everyone for tuning in. Peace out. Thank you very much. Cheers, dude. All the best, mate.